Hi, thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Well, thank you, worship team, for uh, getting us off to such a great start to our, our service this morning. Um, welcome again. It's great to see you here today. And uh, it's my privilege to be bringing the fifth message in our six-week series on the book of the Bible called Titus. Now, when Pastor Doug asked me uh, a little while ago if I would be willing to speak this morning, and when he told me what verses we'd be covering uh, t- today... I noticed something. I noticed that there's 46 verses in the little book of Titus, and I noticed that this is a six-week series. But when I looked at the section that was designated for us this morning, I noticed it was only two verses long. And I don't know if that's the uh, preaching equivalent of being given a bike with training wheels on it or not, but uh, regardless, I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here. It's great to be here with you this morning while Pastor Doug is away. You know, the Bible is a remarkable book. It's the communication to us as humans from the eternal, all-knowing creator of the, of the universe. So it comes as no surprise that it's an extremely rich book. The Bible is incredibly wide, covering thousands of years of history and speaking into with, with wisdom and insight, a wide spectrum of issues that are still very relevant to us today. It's also an incredibly deep book where the reader can gain fresh, significant insights the hundredth time that they read through a passage in every bit as much as the first time that they ever encountered it. Now, I don't know about you, but my typical approach when I come to the Bible is to take the wide approach. I usually like to read several chapters at a time and cover territory. And so it was refreshing and it was kind of fun to just park on these two verses uh, for a while as I was thinking about this, the message this morning and to ponder them and, and just think about them a little more deeply and for a little longer than might typically be the norm. Uh, let's start by just taking a look and reading our passage If you want to turn in your Bibles or in your apps, it's it's, uh, Titus chapter 3 and the first two verses, verses 1 and 2. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle towards everyone. Now, the first thing that we notice about our passage this morning is that it consists entirely of a list of do's and don'ts. Six things that we should be doing as Christians, and one thing that we should not be doing. Uh, If you've noticed in previous messages in this series, if you've been present, the Apostle Paul has had a lot to say. He spent a good percentage of his time focusing on defining for us what is appropriate conduct for Christians 
in a variety of different contexts in life. Now, before we look this morning at, at exactly what it is that, that Paul is calling us to this week, I'd like to just take a few moments and consider how we sometimes react, what our attitudes are sometimes uh, when we're confronted by instruction that's challenging us to change our behavior. Now, for starters, if you're a typical human, then verses such as this that are telling you what you should and shouldn't do are probably not right at the top of your list of favorite Bible passages. I mean, give us uh, an exciting Old Testament story or a dramatic event from the life of Jesus, please and thank you. But telling me what I should and shouldn't do, you know, there's just something inside of us as humans that resists being told what to do. And, and sometimes we even want to push back on that. I came across this little cartoon that I thought summed it up pretty well, this dynamic. This fellow here uh, suddenly is, is, has this desire that is completely uh, irrational to juggle machetes simply because he's just discovered that he's not allowed to do it. And it's titled, The Essence of Human Nature, and I think there's some truth in that. Don't tell us what to do. In addition, historically, the church has focused very heavily on such lists. Primarily, to be more specific, on the lists of don'ts. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. And consequently, over the years, uh, the church became known primarily for the things that it stood against, which isn't an, an exceptionally uh, attractive message to those who are outside of the faith. I mean, accept Jesus and stop that doesn't make for a very compelling bumper sticker. And then legalism did what legalism tends to do. It piled on and it added to and those lists got longer and more diverse. And over time, people started gauging their relationship with God, their righteousness, even their very salvation itself, on their ability to conform behaviorally to such lists. And if they didn't measure up, they were just encouraged to try harder. Now, eventually, the church made a, a corrective shift in emphasis and focus, and started focusing more on messages of, of love and of grace instead of behavior and conduct. And that was a needed correction. The trick, though, with any pendulum swing is to stop on the way back once you've hit the right spot. Uh, but I think the church, in some ways missed the sweet spot there, and, and continued on a little bit too far past it. Now, don't misunderstand me. I, I'm not talking in any way about that there should be less messages on love and grace. Heaven forbid. But I think that the instruction about the proper role and the place of Christian conduct, I think, uh, was, was, has been neglected and diluted a little bit in recent years. And so I want to uh, just sort of get that understanding in place a little bit before we move on. We still come across these lists in Scripture, and we still acknowledge that, yes, it's 
These are things we should be working on. But our sense of immediacy is often lacking. I mean, we know that we're, that we're forgiven. We know that our faith is not by, is by what Jesus did for us. It's not in our own works. We know that that's where our justification comes from. Uh, we know that um, God is a God that forgives and that perfection in this life is unattainable. And these are all very true, but if we're not careful, we can sometimes start thinking of our conduct as Christians as just not very important. We can start approaching them more of a kind of a general goal that we should slowly be meandering towards rather than an imperative that needs to be obeyed. Now let me clarify something here. When I'm, you know, we're talking a lot about conduct as, as Christians this morning, because Paul did. But what we're not talking about here is we're not talking about pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're not talking about just trying harder to be better. As we heard last week, uh, our efforts in and of themselves in those areas will never be sufficient. We'll never be able to do that in our own strength. And it's only as God's love and grace flows through us that we'll be able to live in a manner worthy of our calling. So correcting and improving our conduct isn't just about trying harder. It's about drawing closer to God and deepening our relationship with Him so that His love and His grace can flow through us in the measure that's required to live and to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of our calling. So I'd want to clarify that, that we're not talking about just trying harder. You know, one of the reasons that I think the importance of our conduct as Christians has diminished a little bit in our minds is that we tend to think of this as just simply a, of an issue between me and God. Uh, my conduct is just something that God and I deal with. And we think, you know, we know that God is God of love and we know that God is a God of forgiveness. And so we um, begin to think that, and we never would state this out loud, but it begins to feel, if we're not careful, that the stakes in this area just aren't very high. I mean, outside of maybe the really big things, right? Uh, our salvation is secure. God forgives. We're as good as the next person. We're not axe murderers or anything like that. And so... When it comes to the area of our conduct, we think, you know, it's something that we'll, we'll incrementally improve in these areas, if and when convenient. But if our growth in those areas slows down or bogs down completely, well, it's really not that big a deal. Now, there are some very deep and significant personal reasons why your conduct and my conduct as a Christian is important based on who we are in Christ, on what he's done for us, what God has done for us. We saw that in last week's passage, and there's elements of that again in next week's passage, so I didn't want to recover that same ground. I thought this morning I'd rather, I would like to highlight how the matter of our conduct as, as Christians is important in a broader sense as well, beyond just ourselves. Our conduct quite literally impacts God's mission in this world, either positively or negatively, and can also have an impact 
on people's very eternity. The stakes are that high. You know, to support that, I want us to review uh, three statements that the Apostle Paul made earlier in chapter 2, in one paragraph where he was also talking about the importance of conduct as Christians. Uh, he listed three so-that's. And these were, were, were uh, things that he gave us that said, you know, your conduct is important so that this happens or so that something else doesn't happen. And so I want to just review those this morning. And uh, beginning in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul informs us that good conduct matters so that no one will malign the Word of God. In verse 8, we learn that we should conduct ourselves appropriately as Christians so that those who oppose you may, not, may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say. And lastly, Paul tells us in verse 10 that good conduct Conduct on our part is important so that in every way the teaching about God, our Savior, is made attractive. You see, when you or I conduct ourselves as Christians in a manner that conflicts with or, or contradicts our message, then that message is opened up to, um, to ridicule and to contempt. Poor conduct on the part of the messenger negates and minimizes their message. I mean, if it doesn't change my life as the messenger, then obviously it must not work, and if it doesn't work, then it's just a bunch of empty words, right? Poor conduct uh, damages our credibility and our reputation, which in turn gives justification to those who are resisting our message. It's pretty easy to ignore or to write off a hypocrite. Important conduct on the part of Christians stains the gospel, making the good news, the exceedingly great news of what Jesus has done, unappealing and unattractive to those who are in such desperate need of receiving it. I've had occasion over the years to, in a variety of different contexts, to be part of teams that either did visitation or, or went in and put on church services in a, a number of different uh, old folks' seniors' homes, typically of the extend-to-care variety. And uh, in doing that, I, over the years, I've, I've had a chance to meet all kinds of, of seniors who live in such facilities. Now, some of the folks that I meet are just real sweethearts. And, and joy and thankfulness just radiate off them regardless of their circumstances. Many others uh, rise and fall in their spirits depending on how they're doing that day, physically and emotionally. But then there's always some uh, who are just angry and bitter about absolutely everything. And especially when they find out you're from a church. Whoa, then look out. And so here's these folks who are standing on the brink of eternity with one foot in the grave and the other foot on a banana peel and they are cursing God, cursing the church and want absolutely nothing to do with the gospel message that they so desperately need. How terrible would it be if on the final day of judgment there was a person standing before God and they said, 
I turn my back on you and refuse to acknowledge what Jesus had done for me on the cross because at one point in time, Gord Hansen said or did this hurtful, inappropriate thing to me. And I, was, I felt justified from that point on to ignore their message. What if your name was on their lips? On the other hand, how incredible would it be for someone to stand there and say, you know, as I got to know, and go ahead and insert your name there, and I saw the difference that their faith made in their life. I wanted to hear more about this Jesus they were talking about. And I wanted what I saw. I wanted that for my family and for myself. And so I came to the point where I accepted Christ's sacrifice for me on the cross. I placed my faith in him and I gave him my heart. And I'm standing there today. Not that our behavior holds the power of salvation, but we, our actions can be stumbling blocks in that path or we can enhance that path uh, through our conduct as Christians. Now, um, having said that, having established that, let's turn our attention now to what Paul is, has for us in our passage today, what he's calling us to this week. Now, up to this point, Paul has, uh, Paul has addressed five distinct groups of Christians and has talked about the conduct that would be appropriate for them in their specific circumstances and station in life. He's addressed young men and older men, young women and older women, and he's addressed slaves. But now, in this passage, we see here that it, this is, is addressed to the people. Paul starts by saying to Timothy, remind the people. And so we can assume from this that this instruction, what he's going to say next about proper conduct for Christians is applicable, is relevant to all Christians, to all believers, not just different people at different stages of life or in different situations. All people. We also notice here that uh, Paul says, remind the people, which indicates to us that this isn't new teaching for them. This is something that they've heard before. And so... Um, this is, is a reminder, and, and I think that's good for us to remember as well, that we too sometimes need to be reminded in these areas. Like the Cretan Christians, we haven't got this all figured out. And there's that pesky application stage where we have to put it all into practice that we're still working on, similar to them. And so as they tended to get sidetracked and forget, so do we. And so it's good for us to be reminded this morning as well. Paul's first instruction to Titus is to remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. Now, the English word subject here comes from a Greek word that speaks of assuming responsibility, of cooperating with, and helping to carry the burden. So, basically what Paul's doing is calling Christians here to be respectful and productive citizens in, in the uh, culture in which they live in. Stepping up, shouldering the burden, playing productive roles, working with, paying taxes, honoring the position 
and the office, even if we think the person holding it is less than honorable. I think this is a good reminder for us uh, residing here in post-federal election 2019 Canada, where some of us are maybe very tempted to smear our government and to resist its authority. You know, I think it's also good to be reminded that that Jesus seconded, seconded this instruction as well. He confirmed and put his stamp on this as well. You know, one of the big problems uh, with Jesus being accepted as the Messiah when he came was that virtually everybody in that time and, and place and culture expected the Messiah to come and lead the nation in this, in this massive political and military, re, military revolt, throwing off the chains of the occupying uh, country, the country of Rome that was occupying them at that time. And they expected the Messiah to have that type of focus. And um, at one, there was a place there in, in the Gospels where the religious leaders are trying to trip up Jesus and trap him. And they asked him, uh, is it okay or should, should the people pay taxes to the Romans? This is the occupying country. And they figured that no matter how he answered, they'd have him pinned down and they could accuse him. And uh, Jesus held up a coin, and he said, whose image do you see on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. And so Jesus gave that uh, famous reply of his when he said, then render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. You see, Jesus came to lead a spiritual revolution, not a political one. Be subject to your rulers and authorities. Now, to be honest, I'm really not sure what level of political activism is appropriate or inappropriate for the believer. That just comes in so many different sizes and shapes. But I would say that that any desire to get involved in that should be taken carefully and prayerfully to God first. And his wisdom and his direction should be sought in light of this and other teachings in Scripture. Um, The next instruction that Paul gives Titus here is to remind the people to be obedient. Now, in some ways, that almost seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? I mean, what's the point in giving any instruction if if it's not going to be obeyed? And that is pretty much exactly the point. Obedience is absolutely foundational to not only this teaching, but to all the teaching of Scripture. And if we were to be honest, we would admit that like the Cretan Christians, we too sometimes need to be reminded of this. You know, it's all too easy to begin substituting knowing for doing. But knowing is no substitute for doing. Apostle Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 said, Knowledge in and of itself puffs up. It just makes us proud. But love, the application of that knowledge, builds up and is productive. God doesn't want a bunch of know-it-alls. He wants a bunch of do-it-alls. Someone once said that outside of every church, there lies a graveyard of good intentions. 
And I think that's true. We come here on Sunday mornings, and whether it's through the worship time, whether it's through the sermon, whether it's through interacting with other believers around the foyer and and different parts of the building, whether it's through service, often within our hearts, a desire to grow and change springs up. But then the service ends, and we walk out those doors, and the cares and the pressures and the realities of life hit us. And if we're not really careful, if we're not really intentional, then those desires often just die on the vine. Be obedient. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? And in John chapter 14, he stated, Anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. Not just listen to it, not study it, not memorize it, not write it on a plaque and hang it on our walls, but will obey. Obedience is absolutely foundational. Paul's next reminder in the text is to be ready to do whatever is good. You know, there are certain passages in Scripture that when I when I read them, and typically these are passages that, that talk about either the actions or the attributes of God, and if I sit down and I try to contemplate them and I try to wrap my head around them and fully comprehend them, they just start, it just starts hurting. It just starts boggling and blowing my mind. And one of those such passages that's relevant here this morning is Ephesians 2, verse 10, which says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has prepared long in advance good works for you and for me to do. That's crazy when you think about it. That means that at any given time, on any given day, there may be a divinely planned, divinely prepared opportunity to serve God and to further his kingdom coming right at me. Now that also means that at any given time, on any given day, I may be obliviously walking right on past a divinely planned, divinely prepared, eternally significant opportunity if I'm not ready. So what does it mean to be ready? To ensure that this doesn't happen, that we just walk right on past these opportunities that God has prepared for us. Now, the word ready here comes from the same Greek word found in 1 Peter 3, chapter 3, verse 15, where we're instructed to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that re- resides within us to all who ask. It's the same word in, in, used in the Gospels that tells us to be ready for the Lord's return when it comes. To be ready means to be expectant. To be expecting such opportunities to be coming our way and to be talking to God about that. It means to be observant. To be looking for indicators that such an opportunity might be at hand. And then it means to be responsive. To act, to step in, to lean into those opportunities when they they do present themselves. Be ready. The next uh, 
instruction we get is, is actually the only negative instruction on the list, the only don't, if you will. Paul says, remind the people to slander no one. So don't slander. Don't speak evil of. Don't be verbally abusive. Don't hurl insults and criticisms at anyone, regardless of whether you feel they deserve it or not. The word slander here comes from the same Greek word that talked about how the religious leaders of the day hurled insults and maligned Jesus Christ himself as as they tried him and convicted him improperly. This is the only instruction on the list that overtly addresses what comes out of our, our mouths. The words of our, of our mouths. The Bible has a lot to say about our tongues and the words that we speak. Uh, sometime, if you haven't done so, read through the little book of James and just underline the tongue each time it comes up. James has a lot to say about the power inherent in our tongues, in the words that we speak, the power to harm and, and destroy um, if we're not careful. The wisdom that's found in Proverbs tells us that the tongue has, holds the power of life and of death. Think about that. The words that you speak, the words that I speak, hold the power of life or death. It says in another passage in Proverbs that the words of the reckless pierce like a sword while the words of the wise bring healing. So let's keep a tight rein on our tongues. Slander no one. Instead, let our words be instruments and bearers of life and of of healing. Turning back to our text, we see Paul's next reminder to Titus is to teach the believers to be peaceful and considerate and always be gentle towards everyone. So even though there's three characteristics here, uh, because of their similarities and the overlap, we're going to just treat them as one group. The word peaceable here means not contentious. Don't be argumentative, antagonistic quarrelsome, combative, prickly. Insert your own word here that may be uh, a synonym that you can identify with. The Apostle Paul in the 12th chapter of his letter to the church in Rome said, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful, what is, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. As much as is possible, or if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Be considerate. The word here speaks of of a gentleness of spirit, a meekness, a humility that considers the needs of others ahead of their own. Characteristics that would stand one in in very good stead if they were trying to be a peacemaker. A passage in the letter to the church located in Philippi sums this up very well when 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 Paul instructs the church there to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, 
Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking out for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Be considerate. And be gentle, and, and always be gentle towards everyone. You know, in addition to that sort of mildness of spirit that we would typically associate with gentleness, the word used here also carries with it a calling for patience and, interesting, interestingly enough, for fairness. I found that interesting. Treat people gently with patience and fairness. So while it's true that this life isn't fair, that should never be a result of our actions as Christians. Once again, we're instructed that this is something that we should always do to everyone. Not just when we feel like it, not just to those we feel that deserve it, but treat everyone with gentleness. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle towards everyone. You know, from what we read in the book of Titus, as well as what the observations that have been made by historians that lived in that same time period, the Cretan church that Paul is addressing here lived right in the middle of a pagan culture that was dominated by, by greed and um, what else was going on there? <laughs> Sorry about that. Dominated by greed, selfishness, and just, just an assortment of other sinful behaviors. And I think in, in light of that, I think some of that could resonate with us as well because some of those same things we see in our own culture that surrounds us. And so Paul's challenge to the Cretan church resonates with us when he challenges them to wrench free and rise above the gravitational pull of the culture that surrounded them and to live in a radically different way. You see, we as Christians are called to be different. But not just any old kind of different. We're not called to be weird different. We're not called to be off-putting different. We're not called to be intolerant different. We're not called to be holier-than-thou different or isolated and insulated different. All types of different that various Christians and groups of Christians have adopted over the years. No, we're called to be different in ways that reflect the character of our God and that will make our exceedingly important message to the world around us of God's love for them and Jesus' saving sacrifice for them on the cross attractive and appealing to their ears. Like the Cretan Christians, the morality and the behaviors in the culture that surrounds us is in a state of of diminishing and and decay. And while that's regrettable, it shouldn't alarm us or discourage us because the darker the night, the brighter and the warmer and the more inviting shines the light. So let's take this matter of our conduct as Christians seriously. And so live our lives in a manner that attracts and invites and encourages those around us to hear and receive the message that we bear of God's great love for them 
and of Jesus' amazing sacrifice for them on the cross. We'll close uh, with these words of Jesus uh, found in Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This isn't about getting a pat on our own back. This is about presenting God and our message of salvation to the world in an attractive manner. So, amen. Go in peace. And let God's grace and love flow through you in a manner that allows you to live your life in a way that is consistent with your calling as messengers and ambassadors of the King. Have a great day.